Let's um, let's start out in this podcast by uh, going to Isaiah fifty-five, and I I want to start out by offering something that I believe the Lord is making for us as an invitation into another place of understanding. I I think that you're going to be delighted in listening to uh, this talk, as well as I think that possibly even challenged. Uh, and and may, maybe even beyond that is, you know, just hearing these words that Jesus said to the to the Baptist. He he said, "Blessed are you who are not offended by me." And so I think that some of what is going to be said today could be, you know, construed as highly offensive, as well as uh, liberating. And I hope that you will take this podcast as a place of liberation for you. Lord, we just we just start out by just giving you thanks. Uh, probably one of the more and or most challenging reveals on a podcast that I, I may do. I pray that uh, your words, your your aspect, your revelation would come through uh, this, and it would be enlightening, uh, challenging, and profound in our understanding of who you are and what you have. Uh, destined, predestined, and elected for us as your people to go through. And I pray that we take this invitation as something valuable, something that we can take ownership in and steward. Uh, I pray that this seed that goes in today will be vital, that, that we would see it as a vital necessity in our life. And it would shift our priorities to be turned towards you solely, that we would be covenantally uh, faithful to you, Lord. That we would be, uh, we we would long for your presence more than we would anything uh, else in our life. We just bless you, Lord, in your name, Amen. Again, Isaiah fifty-five, the Lord's given us an invitation. He says, "Hey, all you who are thirsty, come to the water, and you that have no money, come, uh, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, and." without cost. As many of you know, it does take money to purchase commodities. We need money to buy groceries, uh, pay our bills. And this is why this invitation that the Lord is presenting to us is so profound because he's saying, hey, if you're really thirsty or or you need something, I want you to come and eat. I want you to purchase something, but I I want you to, you're going to do this without money and it's not going to cost you anything. And uh, in this already is a presentation of the gospel because, as you well know, and maybe you do not know, but Jesus has uh, purchased everything for us and paid for it on the cross, buried and rose again, and uh, one of the more profound and ascended to the Father where he's seated right now. And so what does it take to go and buy without money? Well, it's going to require something it's going to require another resource or an aspect of resource, which I believe is called faith. Faith is the uh, resource and the, the tool that is used to access within the heavens, uh, to access the realm of the kingdom. Remember it says, uh, without faith it is possible to please God, that you must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Also, I believe it says that anything that is not faith is sin. 
so without faith, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And it says in John 6 that when they're asking what works would you have us do, Jesus says, this is the work that I have for you, that you believe on the one whom he has sent. Jesus gives a definition of work as believing on the one whom he has sent. And so this is our definition of work, and we know the definition of sin now, that sin, anything that's not faith is sin. What are you saying, Carol? If God has given us these definitions of sin and work, he's let us know that work is anything that involves believing in the Lord and following him faithfully. That is your work. And that could be in a million different things. Occupations is not for me to say what your work is, whether it is in in a job or a career or in some other aspect that he's called you to. But there is some kind of dimension here that involves God speaking to us uh, by the word saying, hey, come and buy without money and without cost. And so there is a place where we can go beyond our normal commodities and move into having something freely that we don't have to pay for. So he says here in verse 2, why, why do you pay money for something that will not nourish you? Why do you spend your hard-earned money for that which is not clearly food? Now, I think that what he's doing is he's juxtaposing uh, the realm of natural need and spiritual need. In Deuteronomy 8, I believe it says there, it said, that, I suffer you to hunger in the wilderness that you would know. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. You'll see also that Jesus will, there will be times when his disciples will come to him with, do you want us to go get you something to eat? And he says, uh, I have meat that you know not of. Now, Jesus is functioning out of another dimension, out of a place of uh, provision. Not to say that Jesus doesn't eat, but that Jesus is also pray, placing a priority on his um, Father's work above and beyond his own physical need. He's saying that, I believe, that we've got to place the realm of a relationship with the Father over and above my own physical needs for certain commodities. And he's also saying that this doesn't have to cost you anything, but it's going to require... Uh, faith, And uh, I've already made a presentation of faith, so I won't repeat that. He says, now listen to carefully to me and eat what is nourishing. So he's saying there's, there's a fine food that is available to us. And I think probably one of the greatest deceptions that are going on in our day, Esau fell for it, you know, wanting a pot of soup over and above his birthright, is giving up our inheritance to consumerism. And man, I can't say enough to this, and it, this is constantly a challenge for many of us to place the Lord before our own personal needs and say, we're going to put you first and your word first. So he said, pay attention, come to me, listen so you can live. And the Lord wants to offer us something that's eternal, uh, eternal life. 
Um, he wants to make this what is actually a reliable covenantal promise that he made to David. Now, he says right now, he makes a shift here. He says, look, I made him a witness. And I, I want to use this kind of language here, and I believe it's fitting for the Hebrew, that he made David a prototype of what in the grace of God is available to all of us. That God's grace has made us in such a way that David now has become prototype or prototypical of what he would do for any of us. I've preached this many times that what the Lord wants, however, is a Davidic heart and not one that is divided. And this division happens when we seek consumeristically to have things and to place that before the Father's covenantal or a relationship with the Father covenantally, um, being fidelis, being placing Him before as our vital necessity and need every day in our life. This is going to culminate in the end of the age with uh, necessity as it's related to, and I can't get into all this today, but the Antichrist and buying and selling and as the Lord is preparing us uh, right now. Many of you are being prepared by the Lord where the Lord is having to become your daily provision, your daily need, your daily sustenance. He himself is your everything that you could ever long for or need or want. And so he's, he's saying, I made him as witness to your nation, to the nations or a, or a prototype of nationally and internationally of what a, a man or a woman in the grace of God can look like. And I made him a ruler and a commander of those nations. So not only did he make him prototype internationally, prototype that any uh, man or woman that looks upon the life of David, and I would encourage you to do that, like uh, A.W. Pink, Mike Bickle has great commentary on the life of David. I encourage you to go in and dig into the life of David. Uh, But not only did he make him a prototype of what multinational view of man would look like, or but he also made him not just that, but also a ruler and a commander. And so he, he set him up as a king on an international scale. And there's a there's a real dynamic to that, which today on this podcast, I'm going to dig into this with you uh, because it's, it's one thing to have a heart like David. It's another thing to be a king like David. And, uh, and I want to you know make those distinctions for you today to see there's an internal prototype and then there is an external flourishing of a monarch or a monarchy that God intends that we you know, will involve ourselves with. And so there's a, a contextual beginnings to this podcast. And so I want to jump now. I'm going to go into 1 Peter 2, 9 and read this to you. Uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim his virtue. The one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you were once not a people, but now you are God's chosen. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he goes on to urge us as foreigners and exiles to keep away from the fleshly desires that's warring against our soul and to maintain good conduct among non-Christians so they will not uh, malign us. Again, 
he says here, but you are people who are chosen. You're a chosen race. And so he doesn't talk about, he's not race baiting here and he's not, you know, he's not getting into the thoughts sort of patronizing us based off race. He's calling us a chosen race. And so every, this would involve every nationality. It's not to make distinction between nations or separate nations. He, he says, out of that, you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of his own to proclaim virtue. And that is the nature of kingship and royalty is to proclaim virtue and the wisdom of one who is of godly virtues. Now, I want you to think about this because this is this has been a very shaking thing for me and I think it's very profound and that God is is saying to you and I uh, by the text here that you're a royal and I suppose and I don't and I really want you to let this sink in how many of us are living in the natural in a place of royalty I mean literally because I believe as we're preparing for this this major transition of the king coming back that we are being prompted by the king to start believing and actually living in this mind set before uh, he comes and I I don't really know how better to present this material than to draw upon an excerpt uh, from Sickness Unto Death by Soren Kierkegaard that years ago when I was asking the Lord, like, Lord, circumstantially on property, uh, circumstantially meaning property, meaning household, or houses, lands, and also uh property as it relates to building economic wealth for our families as well as persons and people who are are related with us in regards to ruling and reigning with you that are have given themselves fully covenantally faithfully to you even within our own family structures and within our ministries or society at large how many of these people are covenantally fidelis towards you and then and in our, our provision, um, are we showing forth royalty? I mean, does, does a royal have an issue ever with provision? Does a royal have an issue with owning land? Does a royal have an issue with a lack of virtue or wisdom or power? And I, and I would say that no. And so... If we circumstantially are having issues with these things within our family structures or our household environment concerning intellectual property or property that we own or lands, and if there seems to be a a difference between what you say about us and what we see, then that bridge must be gapped because if we're going to believe this, it's either nonsensical to believe and we go on about life and we do the best we can, or we actually believe what your word says and see it. Everything that 
Jesus said he saw. And so some in the fundamentalist camp have said that, well, that day's not for us now, that we would rule and reign with the Lord and uh, we're supposed to gut it out and bear it in this life and get all our theology correct. And then uh, one day when we get to heaven, we get our mansion in glory and that's what we're going to wait on and we sort of just uh, sit back and in our pews or our seats or in our homes or and we don't really believe what God has said about us because we're waiting for the uh, the mansion in the sky so to speak and and then you know then there's another camp they're called moderns or we call them liberals and they're like well uh, we may not see a lot of this happen right now but we better uh, get into some cause related things and get into social justice and help other people out and uh, work to better mankind's plight. And I'm not against helping the poor or serving humanity and giving. And I, I was really struck by this years ago when I was listening to, I believe it was Paris Reedhead in his work that he did called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. And I believe in that work he presented that both of those two that I just described was what he would call humanism. And, and humanism says that the end of all being is the happiness of man. And that is not Christianity. And, and we really need to get this understanding correct, especially as I present today, that when I'm talking to you or doing this talk, that I am not describing a fundamentalist theological perspective that would somehow gain us a place in glory, as I believe that that still is wrapped up in humanism, just like Reedhead presented, nor am I saying that in a liberal way uh, that we should, uh, we should just go and take care of everybody in a communal way, not that we shouldn't uh, go feed the poor or take care of other people. I'm not denying those, nor have our theology correct. What I am saying is I don't believe that those two things, if the presupposition of them are to embedder oneself futuristically or to embedder other people's plight now, is necessarily related to what Christianity is about. Again, and you may hear this, that the fundamentalist may be completely legal, but the modern may be completely liberal. And, and I would ask you to go and listen to my a podcast called Reuben's Restoration that in fact that this legal and this liberal may be eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they may be a red party and a blue party. And it's all it's doing is creating havoc and inconsistency between us as people anyways. I remember when the Lord said, you know, why have the blue and the red when you can have purple? Why not take the best of what is righteous on the right, proper virtue, and on the left, which is based in self-discovery that comes from me, and why not be blessed to be a blessing? But you're going to have to seek an ethic that is outside of a legal and a liberal mindset. You're, you're going to need to seek something else, and, and this is what faith is. Fundamentally, this is what faith is. It's a relationship with a father. By the blood of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
And this is the foundation upon which I've been tasked to speak of this uh, talk today because if you take these words seriously, this podcast should effectively challenge every presupposition that you're living in right now. It should challenge you to place Jesus as sovereign ruler over your life and Lord at the forefront of everything that you do, think, or feel that you should want and come into hearing his word, but also starting to see him at work. And then let me read this excerpt from Sickness Unto Death by Soren Kierkegaard. There is so much talk about being offended by Christianity because it is so dark and gloomy, offended because it is so rigorous, etc., But it would be best of all to explain for once that the real reason that men are offended by Christianity is that it is too high. Because its goal is not man's goal. Because it wants to make men into something so extraordinary that he cannot grasp the thought. If I were to imagine a poor day laborer and the mightiest emperor who ever lived And this mightiest emperor suddenly seized on the idea of sending for the day laborer who had never dreamed and in whose heart it had never arisen that the emperor knew he existed, who then would consider himself indescribably favored just to be permitted to see the emperor once, Uh, something probably he would relate to his children and grandchildren as the most important event in his life, What if the emperor sent for him and told him that he wanted him to be his son-in-law? What then? Now, I had to stop here for a minute because I can read this to you, but I mean, you've got to think how profound this is. Uh, Let's just say that uh, you're working daily and you're doing your thing in life and you're a young man or a young lady and all of a sudden... You think of the most, one of the royal family, let's just go to something that there's a royal family today, like in Great Britain, and uh, I don't know where all of you are located or whatever, but you get a phone call, or probably an emissary, someone from the royal family, a steward is sent to your home, and they knock on your door, and they say to you, "Um, you've been asked to come to Great Britain, Uh, Queen Elizabeth, I would like to have your audience. Uh, who, me? Under, you don't understand. You've definitely got the wrong person. I am not the person for this. I've, I'm, uh, I'm uh, tending to my things here. And they said, well, uh, actually, it's, they've been provided with some something like prophetically, and they believe that you are supposed to be the, uh, the next heir. Uh, you're going to be in a place of kingship or queenship. You're going to be the one who is going to come into this family. And, and uh, you know, the first thing you would think is, well, I don't, I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the, uh, the backing. I don't have the, I don't have any money. I don't, I don't look very good. I, I don't, you don't know what kind of family I've been raised in. And, you know, I, I can't even imagine that they would want me to come and say, no, they, they really want you to, and they want to marry you to their, their child. Um, I think this is so far off for so many of us that we can't even imagine it. I mean, you can't imagine what it's like to come into a royal family 
you can't even like many of us cannot even comprehend what it's like to never have another need ever again like you don't have to go to work anymore so to speak like your all your bills are paid for the rest of your life not just that you're looked upon in such a way that you know millions upon millions the decision that you make is the decision that's going to affect all of them and they're looking to you as someone that when you walk into the room everybody just sort of like looks at you and they think oh my goodness i mean most of us have no comprehension of what that's like to you don't know what it's like to be put into the back of a a rolls royce and driven everywhere that you go i mean we don't there's so many aspects of this that I can't even do it justice to explain it. And so, quite humanly, Kierkegaard goes on to say, the day laborer would be more or less puzzled, maybe self-conscious, maybe embarrassed by that proposition. He would, and this is the humanness of it, humanly find it very strange and bizarre, uh, something he would not dare to tell anyone since he himself had already secretly concluded that his neighbors near and far would busily gossip about it as soon as possible. That the emperor uh, wanted to make a fool of him. That he was going to make a laughingstock of the whole city. That there would be cartoons of him in the newspaper. His story would be, to, to be engaged to the emperor's daughter would be sold to um, people who were basically he calls it the ballad peddlers, but it's people that were uh, mocking or it'd be kind of like being placed in the tabloid today. But people would peddle this as gossip and look down on you. This plan for him to become the emperor's son-in-law simply would have to take on an external reality very soon so that the day laborer could be certain in some substantial way of whether the emperor was indeed in earnest about this or whether he only wanted to pull the poor man's leg, make him unhappy his whole life, and ultimately send him to the madhouse. For present here is the quid nimis excess that can be so very easily turned into its opposite. A little favor, that would make sense to the laborer, it would be understood in the market town by the esteem, the culture public, by the people who peddled the gossip of the day. But this, what this, a plan for him to become a son-in-law? Well, that's too much. How many day laborers do you think would have courage to believe this? Now, I want to just put something out here. How many would have courage to so much courage that they would say I'm going to shift all my priorities now to move into a belief system that's outside of my labor I'm, I'm going to basically say wait a minute this is what you're saying you're, you're saying I'm a royal 1 Peter 2 9 says it you're a royal priesthood wait a minute I work with my back you know, Dad did say that it's easier to work with your brains than your back, but if you can't work with your brains, you better just go ahead and work with your back. At least you got something you can give to your family. Kierkegaard goes on to say the person lacking this courage would be offended. To him, the extraordinary would seem like a give at him. He would then perhaps honestly and forthrightly confess, 
Such a thing is too high for me. I cannot grasp it. To be perfectly blunt, to me, it is a piece of folly. Christianity teaches us that this individual human being and thus every single individual human being, no matter whether man, woman, servant girl, cabinet minister, merchant, barber, student, or whatever, this individual human being exists before God. This individual human being who perhaps would be proud of having spoken with the king only once in his life, this human being who does not have the slightest illusion of being on intimate terms with this one or that one, this human being exists before God. Now, it says this in Hebrews, you know, you must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And what Kierkegaard is saying here is, is that what is incomprehensible to most of us, and, and, we, and I, I tell you that passage that I just quoted, it is so largely misunderstood because so many people are living like an atheism and calling it Christianity. What I mean is so many people are, they are not believing what I am presenting to you right now because their life is compartmentalized from what God the Father is saying to them about how they view Him. Uh, what I mean is, is anytime you say, well, this is for my church day and this is for my work day, or somehow separating yourself or bifurcating yourself as it relates to like sort of living two different lives. Like, uh, well, the Word of God tells me this, but I'm actually going to live another way because that can't be true, really. And uh, this is happening all throughout Christendom right now. I mean, many people are they're taking the merits of Jesus as Savior, but they are really not saying, well, He's Lord of everything because they don't actually believe that He exists. And many people don't even believe that they exist before Him, meaning that He sees and knows everything that's going on. He knows all our intention, all our thoughts, all our movements, and everything that we do or have done or will ever do. And so many people, and this is the subject matter of this podcast, are not walking into an understanding of God exists in the heavens now and we exist before Him. How do I know that? Well, Facebook tells me that. Instagram tells me that. Uh, the news tells me that. The TV tells me that. All these social media devices tell me that. How does it tell me that? It tells me that I'm placing more of an emphasis on these things. Or if I am, and more than the Father and my relationship with the Father, my job's telling me this, my beauty, my looks are telling me this, what my clothing looks are telling me this, my house is telling me this, my property is telling me this, my pedigree is telling me this, everything seems to be telling me this is who you are, how many books I've written, how many people know my name. I mean, let's, we can go on and on. I'm apostle this, prophet that, priest this, pastor that, shepherd this. I've got this many kids. I did this. I accomplished that. I'm on the TV here. All these things are telling us who we are. But there's a God who exists, a Father who exists outside of all of that. And we exist before Him. And there's this drawing through this, what I'm saying today, that draws us to an understanding that 
He literally is the only eyes that we need to be fixed on and that are fixed on us. And I, I think that a lot of this conclusion is happening and all of this realm of faith and things that we're working through is to get to this real clarity of I exist before God, that he is, but not just that. And this is the joy of the resurrection. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so a lot of our death to flesh and what we're going to is it's really it's letting go of, a, of an idea of freedom that is freedom based in some kind of superficiality that is not based in the true freedom that Christ brings us. And so this is what this individual he's talking about exists before God and, and that he has invited us to um, intimate terms with him. So furthermore, for this person's sake, also for this very person's sake, God comes into the world, allows himself to be born, to suffer, to die, and the suffering God, he almost implores. He's beseeching this person to accept his help that is offered to him. Truly, if there's anything ever to lose one's mind over, um, this is it, as Kierkegaard uh, concludes. Now, I want to go and address something, and I think that this will be really helpful here, concerning the Father and um, His will, and then how that relates to our will. And so I, I think that there comes a place here where we, I, I have to, to move in, into this, I have to address something called free will and the I will of the Father. Now, I have a podcast called The Lucifer Appeal, and even if you were to stop this podcast right here and go and listen to that one, just like earlier I mentioned listening to Reuben's Restoration, it would be really helpful for your mindset to understand what I'm going into because Lucifer has his own set of I wills, and you need to listen to those and understand that platform that he's trying to build off of. And then there's a father's platform in I wills that he brings. And so the question now becomes here, I, I believe, is it, it is it is concerning our will versus the Father's will. And I want to say this about free will. I think that it would be in your and my best interest to take the Father's I will over your own free will. Now, because there are all these free will proponents and valid, there may be what you would call a free will, but I, I want to read to you something I wrote. The freedom to exercise my will does not make me free. Now, let me say that again. The freedom to exercise my will does not make me free unless I'm submitted to the I will of the Father who is free. Even though granted that free will may be given as an illusion of freedom. So you may, you may case in point, say, I have a free will. And I'm not really here to argue with that you have or have not a free will. My point is, is it's a question of freedom. Does your free will or has your free will provided you the freedom that you see? I mean, it says in Scripture, Jesus says, for freedom sake I came to liberate you or to make you free Jesus came to make us free that means that maybe my idea of freedom 
may not be the freedom that God wants you, the Father wants you to have. For instance, the day laborer. He has an idea of freedom. If I go and I labor in these widgets and I keep working at this, eventually I'm going to be free and I'm going to be able to retire. But what if the day laborer's idea of freedom is not really free? What if the freedom that the father has for the day laborer is to make him the son-in-law? What if that was his idea? Well, again, it seems so far-fetched. Well, I've never even considered that level of freedom. I don't pay taxes anymore. I don't drive myself anywhere anymore. Uh, When I walk into a place, everybody knows my name. I own my own property. I have my clothing tailor-made for me. I can pick whatever dog or cat I want. I basically can do whatever I would like to. Now, I'm submitted, submitted, though, into a new level of freedom. And so the question here is, is an issue of freedom. And what freedom do you want to live in? Well, if you keep asserting your own free will, I guess you have the freedom that you uh, can go and work for. But what if there's a freedom that is way beyond the freedom that you and I could ever labor for? What if there's a freedom in the Father? And so, again, the Father who is free, though granted has given free will, but what if that free will is an illusion of freedom? Why? Why would he allow this to test man's heart to see what man truly loves? What does this free will do that maybe you and I have received? It tests us. Because it drives you into a relationship. How so? Because my own definition of freedom... Is that what I'm going to choose, or am I going to choose the Father's definition? And the Father has set this thing up just like this because what He wants is He wants a relationship with you and me. And in this way, we come deeper and deeper into the Father's love for us. So every time I can go exert my own will, and then I say, oh no, not my will, but yours be done I'm walking into another process or development of freedom I'm saying no I don't choose that place to sort of buy off at and I won't be bought at that level because that level there of freedom is my own idea or somebody else's idea of me and I'm going to go on so he says I want to come into deeper love with the Father The freedom to exercise your or my will does not make us free unless we're submitted to the I will of the Father. So is free will bad? Or is it wrong for you to exercise your own free will? The freedom to exercise your will is your freedom to do so. (laughs) But again, what if the way you define your freedom is not really free? Thomas Merton writes, If we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. We run the risk of hating him if we do not get what we hope for. I would say, this is me, Carol speaking, I would say our right to exercise free will is to cherish a desire that will fail us and is the penultimate iniquity of the human soul. Satan, or the Satan, because Satan is not necessarily his name. His name is Lucifer, but he's 
given the name the Satan after his fall, the Satan means the accuser, is going about the business of deceiving us into believing that the exercise of our own right to exercise free will will liberate us into a greater freedom of self and has managed to convince many people, and I don't want to say this about you because I believe a better thing concerning you, but he's convinced many people to concede our relationship with our Father's I will for our own and has convinced us there is a freedom of liberation that he would even be willing, like with the Lord, he would be willing to give up the whole world for if he had just bowed his knee. I mean, Lucifer is prince of the powers of the air and is willing to give up the whole world just to get a knee bow of the man Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you shall serve the Lord only. You're to put the Lord first. So this is a question right now of which one are we going to go for, the Father's I will or my own free will? We've already, and go to Lucifer Appeal, you can hear about the five I wills of Lucifer. You can hear about the five I wills of the Father, but you can actually come into a new willingness, a willingness today to say, I want your greater glory, Lord. Back to Paris Reedhead, he said that humanism says that the end of all being is the happiness of man. And that that's based in my own interpretation of free will. But he also says that Christianity, the trueness of what Christianity is about is that it would be to the glory of the Father. Whatever brings the Father glory. That which brings the Father glory is the way greater glory is the freedom that you and I cannot conceive of nor manufacture. I mean, look at the Industrial Revolution as it manufactured more freedom for people. Or as it constrained us. I mean, truly, has technology necessarily brought us greater freedom in our families? Now, I'm not an anti-tech person, but I'm asking you to think about this clearly and concisely. Have you walked into a greater place of freedom necessarily just because you have a phone in your hand now or an iPad or a computer device has it brought you more freedom I mean for some of you yes maybe you're producing better and you're doing better than you were before off of e-commerce or e-commerce but are you doing it in relationship to the father and again I'm not denying technology but I am saying that technology the tree of knowledge of good and evil was something we were allowed to view, but we were not to eat from. We are to eat from the tree of life. So if, if we were to say that the choice to exercise our free will is sin, does that make every choice a sin? Question. And again, I've presented this at the beginning of this talk. Romans 14, 23 says, anything that is not faith is sin. A good interpretation of faith in Hebrews 11 it says faith is a title deed hoped for the objective proof of an unseen reality but listen now and, and I'm, I'm really just laying a foundation this podcast first we must receive and become 
and come into the nature of the entitlement of the Father as king priest before he will place us in a finished work with a title deed. Again, what does it say? Faith is a title deed hoped for. The objective proof of an unseen reality. That means there must be an unseen reality, an objective proof that God has made us into a royal priesthood before being placed in the finished work with a title deed. Now, I believe the world wants to give deeds and titles to people, but I believe first and foremost, because he's a the Lord, the Lord, the way he does things as a benefactor is he wants to give you his nature, his image and likeness and restore that before he places you into a finished work. Uh, be like handing someone $10 billion, but they don't have any kind of virtue to handle it. And, you, and you've seen that's happen. I think everyone that's ever won the lottery has uh, ended up in just as great a poverty as they did when they began with it. Why? Because you need the virtue and character and only can re- receive from the Father to handle that kind of provision and property and the persons that come around that. So now that uh, I've established this, I want to start to lay in this understanding with you and begin some teaching, and then I have some personal story that I want to share with you. Now, if you take notes, I would take notes on this. And I want to lay in four aspects of human development as it relates to kingship, or what I like to call a high priest king. First of all, when the Lord starts with us, I believe that he starts with us in developing us as the beloved. And I've got, I've got a podcast on this, and it's called Dark Night. I, I would go in and listen to this about how the Lord lays the foundation of our heart responses to him and that he loves us as a father. It's very necessary, and I, at least for me and, and my wife, Kara, he started with us in the Song of Solomon, and we, we went through these literal amazing uh, processes in all eight chapters of the Song of Solomon. And and right when we were coming to the end of it, the Lord started to open up a ministry which was called MZ Hopper, Melchizedek House of Prayer. And I have a podcast on that too. It's called um, MZ Hop 7.5. And uh, I would go in and listen to that because what I'm doing effectively there is I'm laying out the development of priesthood. There are six aspects of priesthood. And so let me just give this to you the way we're going to work through this today. We have the beloved aspect where the Lord begins and lays a foundation. In the Song of Solomon, the bridal paradigm, as it's been called. And then there are six aspects of priesthood. And now I, I believe that the Lord deals with this both in the male and female dimension and there and, and different ways that we serve and give. But this is we'll be initiated into service and giving of ourselves uh, to others. And so some people are called into the pastorate. Ladies you know, are called into uh, childbearing and having children. Uh, you, may, you may be called into other things. Other than that, I don't want to diminish any of this, but I, as it relates to service within the work, your, your gift mixes, it may be in business. I, it's not for me to say but this would be an initiation of the Father in relationship to you extending yourself to others and giving of yourself uh, sacrificially. There are six aspects of that. 
And I would encourage you to go in now and listen to uh, Final Frontier, the intro to the Final Frontier podcast, because what I do in that one is I get into God permitting you to move on, or it says if God permits, concerning uh, going into the age to come and, and the power behind the veil. I get into that uh, in the final frontier, and that's post-development of, of uh, the priesthood of priesthood one through six. Then you get into high priesthood. That has its own development, and there's ex- extensive development in that uh, for before the Lord will blend the offices of king and priest. I've, I've got a message called Shell Shock, and I deal with the blending of the office of king and priest or king and high priest. And, and, and when the Lord blends that office, that's what First Peter 2.9 is talking about, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we have these four aspects. And there, I also would you know share this with you, and I believe this would be correct. And, but take Hebrews 1 through 6 and read it with Romans 1 through 6. Take Hebrews 7 and read it with Romans 7. Take Hebrews 8 and read it with Romans 8. And uh, today I'm not going to develop the, the high priesthood, kingship uh, blend in Romans 9 and Hebrews 9, or and that would be in the power dimension or the glory dimension that is involved in uh, Hebrews uh, 10 and Romans 10. But those, those podcasts I'm sure will come. But my subject matter today is to, to take you through to just show you that there is a process of sanctification in the Lord that starts in the beloved aspect and moves all the way into um, royal priesthood. At every moment along the way in your development, you will have to submit your free will to the I will of the Father. You'll have to come and buy without money and without price. You'll have to come in to purchase a treasure that is wrapped up in heaven and place more emphasis on that than the treasures that moth and rust come and destroy and brings decaying here on the earth. You're going to have to seek a heavenly reality with the Father and put an emphasis on that more than you place in uh, the natural dimension of every uh, day life. For me, this all started... And, you know, this is, I'm doing these phase double O called auto bio because there's a personal story in this for, for me. And I love to share stories, but I also want to be able to bless you and give you something. You know, for me, this understanding really, I was coming through the bridal paradigm and had went down to Houston, uh, Texas, and uh, was flying on the airplane. And I was listening to Alan Hood a couple of messages that he did for planning works uh, within college campuses. I think it was called the Luke 18 Project. And he had, did, he had done a message on leadership and leading by meekness. And I was listening to him coming back on the airplane and was just thanking God for him. And I, you know, I was prompted by the Lord to uh, turn to Ezekiel 40, I believe I was in 44. He was sharing with me about that he was going to open a gate in the east and bring about 
the glory of his presence and bring a restored temple in the millennial reign. And, um, you know, I was just listening to the Lord and I was, you know, trusting him and, and, and praying about this new government of God coming to the earth and our nation and learning the path of meekness that Alan Hood was speaking of and just asking the Lord to, uh, to teach this to me. And I wanted to uh, learn meekness because meekness means to have power to exercise authority over a situation but to restrain oneself for the good of, for the glory of God and for the good of others. And I was really, you know, honestly sort of troubled and I was asking the Lord, we've been going, like I said, through this beloved aspect in the bridal paradigm and I was asking the Lord questions. And so he shares with me, like I said, out of Ezekiel 44, and I'm just going to read some of this uh, to you. All right, and, and so in Ezekiel 44, there's, there's this closed gate, and I'm asking the Lord, you know, will you open a gate for the United States of America so that, like it says this in Isaiah 26, so that a righteous nation may enter for those who trust in me. Lord, we want to see an awaken and happen in in the United States of America, and I, you know I'm personally very, uh, you know I want to see righteousness, and I want to see people and families turn to the Lord, and so, so I, he tells me to go to Ezekiel 44, and I'm listening, I'm reading this, and it says he brought me back by way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate will be shut, and it will not be opened, and no one will enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it will remain shut. Only the prince may sit in to eat a sacrificial meal before the Lord. He will enter by way of the porch of the gate, and will go out by the same way. And so, uh, you know, I was I was reading that, and, and I said, Oh, Lord, well, there's this Lord or sitting in this gate. It says it's closed. You told me that you're going to open up a gate to flood our nation with your glory. You're going to bring a new government in. Uh, and I'm like, uh, so I start like praying, who's this other guy? Who's this prince? I, I want to know who this is because I want to start praying for them. And so I start praying. I said, Lord, whoever this prince is that sits in this gate and eats bread with you, uh, could you help them and help them find out what they're supposed to do for you so that you can open up an eastern gate to the United States of America and bring your government in? And so um, I'm sitting there praying, and like I said, I'm, I'm on the plane from Houston, and I had, had a few uh, encounters that were pretty incredible to me, and I was just like, uh, and they, they were talking about opening up this gate. and um, And so while I'm sitting there, I hear the Lord speak to me, and he says, you're that man. And I said, oh, man, <laughs> I'm a narcissist. I'm a sociopath. I, I've got such big problems. God, I know that I'm not that man, and I just want to be that man. And, uh, of course, it had never even it even entered into my mind about priest, uh, prince being a prince. You know, I don't come from that uh, at all in my family. I don't come from kingship in the sense that I, that I would know about. And I'm just thankful to be able to give the provision I can to my family. And uh, I've been working hard since I was just a little boy, and I'm not thinking anything about 
this kind of thing. And so the Lord's like, you're that man. And I said, well, and I, and I said this, that I believe that if God speaks to you, he needs a match in his word and you need objective proof of an unseen reality. And so the Lord said, well, I'm going to prove it to you. And I said, how? And this was in around uh, fall of 08. This is when the crash comes on our market. And he says, you just wrote a commercial contract. And I had just, earlier that year, I I had got a, or the year before that, a general building contractor's license for the state of North Carolina. And I could build both commercial and residential homes. And I was just got the business, Tent Maker LLC, like placed into a good place and I'd got all the contractual stuff done and I was going out to start building residential houses uh, like at um, half a million, three quarter million, million dollar houses and do commercial building. And it just got the company where I wanted it to be and then all of a sudden the market crashes. And I'm licking my wounds on this plane from that because now I'm finding out I got this call on my life and I'm in this big, huge reset that I'm not going to be doing that. And I'm being called into ministry because I've been having these six to eight hour day prayer meetings. And I'm finding out about this Melchizedek order. And I don't really know what's going on. And it's really bothering me. And our family's going through financial crisis. And um, I basically, I've lost my company because my investments and everything that I had invested in failed. And, and uh, so, and many of you, I'm sure, very went through some dealings right there. Some of you were not affected of it. Some of you were blessed through it, but I wasn't one of those families. And it's like almost like my whole attention has been arrested off of construction and into what is going on with this Melchizedek order. And so I get this word, and and the word said, I'm going to prove it to you. And I said, well... How so? He's like, you know that commercial contract you just wrote? I want you to look at the name of of it, of the address. And I wrote this beautiful contract, you know. I mean, that thing, I had it snapped up left, right, backwards, and forwards. I knew this guy was going to build with me because there wasn't a dot or a, or a line that wasn't crossing that contract that would make him happy and make us happy. And so I... Um, when he had told me the bank had pulled out on the loan and everything, I was just devastated. And so I opened up the contract in my uh, file on my computer, and I looked down at the address, and it says East Prince Road. And I said, man, I think you're talking to me. And I said, well, you know, I think this East Prince that's in this thing, that's the Lord himself, you know. And then, but it says, but the Lord's talking to this guy, uh, this prince who's sitting there to eat before the Lord. Well, is that the father and the son, or is that some other person? So uh, later on, I do some research on this, and I find this work on the sons of Zadok and the prince of Ezekiel's prophecy. And I'm going to read some of this to you because, again, this is, has to do with my own autobiography, and I want to share this with you. And I've I really haven't wanted to share this with hardly anybody, but the Lord has prompted me to do this, and so I'm, I'm going to share personal history. And I hope that this is, again, like it was for King David, that this becomes a prototype for you. Uh, the, the Word had told me that this galactic progeny was prototype because really what he's wanting to do is create a prototype in the earth or a sign 
so that you too would place your hope in him, that you would want him. So I think my own life, I hope, is becomes a sign, a physical sign for you to have someone who would even talk about this so that you would place all your hope in him. Because this isn't like a, you know, just look at me kind of thing. It's not that way. I, I really truly believe that the Lord wants to draw many sons and daughters into this royal family and that he's he's setting a sign and getting someone to talk about it. Uh, talk about this so that we could start to seek after something that's beyond the veil. And so it's often thought that the sons of Zadok referred to in Ezekiel's account of this vision of the future temple are immortalized saints who minister in the temple. However, this cannot be true. Uh, they must be mortal for a number of reasons, including the following. It says they marry with the same restrictions which apply to Levitical priests of the tabernacle in Ezekiel 44.22. It also says they can be defiled in verse 25 and that they must make sin offerings for themselves, verse 27. If in fact they are immortalized saints, then the question rises, are they male or female? And Jesus says, they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. And the apostle Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, they're all one in Jesus Christ. Now the Levites, including both the ones who went astray and the sons of Zadok who loyally supported David, were limited in number. Although they were always sufficient of them to ensure around-the-clock manning of the tabernacle and the temple. The Levites and priests were rostered into courses. All of them had work to do during certain hours. In the millennial age, the numbers of mortal priests and Levites will also be limited according to their families. And there will be similar rosting ring that's going to take place. On the other hand, the saints are numbered in the hundreds of thousands, probably millions, and including prophet, priest, kings, army generals, ordinary Israelites, and these spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham who have been baptized into Christ and found worthy. Can it really be supposed that there is to be a roster of all these to attend the sacrificial altar for the period of a thousand years? If so, there would be a period of 365,000 days in which priests would be rostered in their courses. And that would leave millions of immortal sons of Zadok with no temple work to do for the whole millennium. Apart from that, why should immortal beings need to attend sacrifices when they already made a covenant with Yahweh by sacrifice and been accepted by him to work in his service in his kingdom? The future temple is to be a Jewish sanctuary and no uncircumcised Gentile in heart or body will be able to enter it. Mortal Gentiles of the kingdom age who are prepared to join themselves to the Lord will be able to do so, but no others. These Gentiles come from all nations, but all people from all nations will not be permitted within the sanctuary precincts. Now about the prince's inheritance. Another question that's puzzled many is that the identity of the prince, who is referred to in Ezekiel 44.3 and onward, some say he's the Lord Jesus Christ, but the text indicates that he's a mortal, like the sons of Zadok. Ezekiel mentions the portions of the land for the priest and Levites. For instance, in 45, verses 4 and 5, it says, The holy portion of the land shall be for the priest, the ministers of the sanctuary, which shall come near to minister unto the Lord, and it shall be a place for their houses, 
and a holy place for the sanctuary. And the five and twenty thousand of length and ten thousand of breadth will be for the Levites, the minister of the house, for their possession and for twenty chambers. In verse 7, it refers to the land on each side of the sanctuary, which he says is for the prince. Well, a portion shall be for the prince on one side of the oblation of the holy portion of the possession of the city before the oblation of the holy portion and before the possession of the city from the west to the westward and from the east to the eastward, and the length shall be over against one of the portions. As verse 4 and 5 refer to the sanctuary before the priest and Levites, it seems natural that the portions on the each side of the sanctuary should be for a mortal person of high priestly rank, and this should seem to be the meaning of the verse. There would be no point in denoting a portion of land to the right and the left of the sanctuary to the Lord Jesus Christ, because by the time he is the owner and the ruler of the entire world. The Lord Jesus Christ does not have sons in the sense used here, for it is clearly indicates these sons are the fruit of a man's loins and not spiritual sons. So the high priest as a prince. The duty of the prince, as outlined in Ezekiel 45, 17 through 25, are remarkably centered, similar to the duties of a high priest of Israel. Note particularly 22. And upon the day shall the prince prepare for himself and and for all the people a land a bullock of sin offering. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for an offering once. Having done so, does not have to do so again. Leviticus 9.7 shows clearly that under the law of Moses, the ordinance of Ezekiel 45.22 was carried out by Aaron as high priest and ruler of the people, but, but under Moses as the prince under Christ. There is a strong scriptural connection between the prince and the high priest. This is supported by Acts 23.25 and the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him, Paul, to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, uh, God shall smite thee, thou whitest wall, for sitteth thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul is quoting Exodus 22:28, Thou shalt not revile the gods, Elohim, referring to the elders or rulers of Israel, nor curse the ruler of thy people. The word for ruler here is Nasei, Strong's 5.3.8.7. So Paul is quoting from Exodus 22:28, was applying the word Nasi to the high priest of Israel. In the sequence of references to the priest starting in Ezekiel 44.3, the original is the same word Nasi every time. There is no mention of a high priest in Ezekiel's prophecy of the new temple, yet Israel under the law had a high priest over all the priests and the Levites. He was their ruler. It would seem strange if Yahweh, in ordaining arrangements for the temple of the age to come, omitted such a person from the hierarchy. So we conclude that the prince of Ezekiel 44 onwards is the high priest. And I, you know, I want to point this out because I talk about, I believe it's in shell shock, but the blending of high priest and king. And it's really important to like hear this out because there is no other high priest after the order of Melchizedek who is the Lord Jesus himself. If he is not to be the high priest in the millennial temple, what work does he perform in his high priest capacity? The answer is that he is of 
a different order. He comes from the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Paul says in Hebrews seven fourteen, Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Why? Because the law has changed. In fact, because it was fulfilled and passed away, the work of the Lord as great high priest is also different and is mainly concerned with the ecclesia today. It is through him that we can approach Yahweh as he is the mediator between us and God. His work as high priest to the faithful believers is largely over by the time he assumes the throne in Zion. He, his high priest takes on a different dimension then. He is the overseer of all the saints who are themselves priests as well as rulers under his command. It would seem that his connection with the temple is largely ceremonial one and he uses the otherwise closed eastern gate to enter in for certain regal occasions. Now, I, I want to say this because what happened after this understanding came to me was I, w- I was sitting under a pastor receiving this vision from the Lord about the Melchizedek order. And this pastor, he says to me, Carol, let's go and, um, let's go and visit Kirk Bennett at Zadok House of Prayer in Charlotte. And um, at this time, I was in a Nazarite vow and it was very difficult to go through that vow uh, back in 07, or excuse me, 08, I was still in it. And, but ne- ne- needless to say, because I took it literally, and my hair was long, and um, I hadn't drank from the vine, and three significant people in my life passed away that year, and I wasn't at their funerals. And, and so anyways, what, and I was in this vow while I was receiving this order of Melchizedek, so we go to Zadok House of Prayer, and Kurt Bennett was there, and he had left Kansas City to go to, to, to get a place at Morningstar. We go in there, and, and he ends up letting his admin set us up an appointment for the following Tuesday. Well, I go in there and sit down with Kirk, and, um, and he said, Now, what did the Lord say to you? And I said, Well, he said, Order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek House of Prayer in Asheville, North Carolina. And he said, Well... I've been studying Melchizedek for seven to ten years, Carol. And he made a really interesting statement to me. He said that, he tells me this story. And he said back in the early 80s, the Lord had told him that through this prophet that he had talked to, that, that God was going to put his feet down in Asheville, North Carolina. And then Kirk said that that one day he was going to come there and with this whole worship team and he said that there was this 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 was going to happen back in the 80s and and so when i was telling him about the melchizedek order and and i was learning of this and he said truly i believe you know god is speaking this to you and and he told me you know you're going to have to be really careful about the m word as he called it he said because it's not really accepted in the the church right now, especially even in the frontline leadership, that they're having struggles with it because of, of the nature of what it presupposes and the blending of these offices of high priest and king. And and I was sort of, you know, blown away by that conversation that day because uh, here I am with a man, and I, you know, I would invite you sometime to listen to Kurt Bennett's testimony. Uh, that I'm sure he shared it. He has a ministry called Seven Thunders. He travels all over the world. 
what happened to him concerning uh, Zadok. And the Lord, you know, speaks to me then, and he says, you're, you're going to bless, this is a son of Zadok. And your ministry is going to bless this ministry, or this minister, uh, Kirk Bennett. And uh, by the grace of God, we've endeavored to do that all these years, and I've certainly learned a lot from uh, doing that. I, you know, Kirk is going around effectively teaching a lot of the leadership in the House of Prayer movement uh, and developing them with the Father, and it's a beautiful ministry that he has. And um, and so, but it was very uncanny to me because at that moment I had already received this uh, message about how this this prince, you know, this Eastern prince, would work with the Zadok priesthood and start doing offerings, and it would bring in the opening of an Eastern gate that would effectively bring in the government of God, or that God was going to, the Lord was going to place his feet down, uh, put his footstool down, so to speak, in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, um, I tell you what, I feel like a real wow right now, and this is this material that I presented to you today. I really, it is my hope that, that it will be presented to those who really need to hear this in the grace of God. Um, I have kept this, I think, for the most part. There may be a dozen people or less that know about this, but I have kept this uh, hidden for all of these years. But I've been challenged by the Lord to come out on it. I think in large part because, and it, it goes right back to what I said at the very beginning, that the Lord wants us to go on the line for what He says. I believe that He's going to bring a global governmental shift. I... I to the earth. I think that we're to make ready for his coming. I've dealt with uh, some of this concerning the restoration of all things spoke of in Acts 3.21. And so it's very important for me, I suppose, the Lord speaking to me to go on the line for this because the Lord is uh, being a little bit more overt about things that have been hidden and secret uh, because he's ready for us to begin uh, agreeing with what he says in the heavens and agreeing with it on earth. I am praying and I pray that I covet your prayers that, that we would prepare for this global inbreaking of, of the Lord who has the right to rule the, the earth and the whole cosmos, that he is the rightful ruler who is seated in that place right now, and that you and I would start coming into agreement with what he says about us. It's very crucial that you realize that the Father is not going to accept a different version of you than the one He sees. And that no matter how great it may be or whatever it may be to us, that we need to believe who we are in Him. And it's very important in this hour that we start to walk in that. I'm going to leave you with this. It it was on my last sermon before I was launched into my own development of priesthood that would last for a number of years from, um, I guess it was April the 4th of 2010, and it would last up until March the 3rd of 2019, the whole development of priesthood and high priesthood. I want to leave you with something that was said to me that night on, I guess it was April the 3rd of 2010. I was praying, and the Lord spoke these words to me and said, Tomorrow, which happened to be Resurrection Sunday, you're going to preach this message called the investiture of the day king. Day meaning the God king or the God of glorious or the glorious king. 
um, that he has the right to be invested with royalty and that we're going to begin to believe him and his royalty. And he said this phrase to me, and, and again, I'll leave you with this. Sovereignty rests in the individual at the point the individual rests in the sovereign. I want to say one thing because it is so, as an addendum, but more importantly, like an overarching idea to everything that's been said today. I want you to think about a, uh, a father or a mother that has a wayward child and that, that you would do anything to have that child restored back to your heart. You would give anything. You know, the Lord uh, has this idea of building an expanded royal family. And so he sent his son to die for us and be, and be raised and to give his blood uh, and purchase uh, his life for us. I want you to get caught up and revel in the fact today more than anything that I've said that the blood has purchased a new identity in the Father. That we would want our family fully restored back together. So when I'm speaking of this high priest and king and, and this greatness of what God has done even in my own personal life and my wife's life and my children's life, again, it's, it's prototypical for you to be restored back to the Father because the Father desires an expanded family. The blood wasn't didn't purchase something that was going to leave us uh, uh, orphaned from him. Now let this be an example to you today of that he cares deeply for you and that he loves you. And he's going to restore all things. Amen.
reflect in the sky And our eyes have been on